Welcome back to the 129th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how capitalism produces socialism, how they're natural counterparts, basically, an interesting article talking about leftism and trying to define it. Can you define leftism? And a final article talking about how by Biden inviting Modi, the Prime Minister of India, to the White House, he's actually giving a little bit of legitimacy to his more authoritarian tactics. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So in our era of modern politics, are there any clear political boundaries anymore? You know, it feels as if people are more and more, they're kind of one-issue voters. They pick that one thing that really resonates them, or they pick a candidate based on that one issue that they really care about. Or in some cases, they just pick candidates on how they feel. Do they feel like they would be a good leader? And when people talk about that, they always say, oh, it's vibes nowadays. And I would argue it's almost always vibes. I mean, think back to Kennedy versus Nixon. Kennedy took advantage of how the TV was a new medium where people could actually see him rather than just hear him. Nixon sounded good over radio. Kennedy looked good on TV. So obviously nowadays it's not just becoming about vibes. It's been about vibes for a while. But it also feels like the old categories are breaking down. They're kind of fading. You know, what will take their place? That's my question to you, along with do you feel like the boundaries are a little bit more blurred nowadays between different political categories? All right, now let's jump to our first article. It comes from the Imaginative Conservative. Capitalism produces socialism. And when I first read that headline, I was like, okay, interesting. I mean, thinking back on the history, socialism was born after capitalism. Maybe there's some interesting connections there. And I've thought about it after reading this, and there are definitely some through lines that I agree with. But I will preface this by saying they do a lot of quoting from Pius the Eleventh, And you have to understand that where Pius is coming from, he's the leader of the, he's the Pope, he's the leader of the Catholic Church, and he is speaking in a post- Catholic hegemonic world or post-Vatican hegemonic world. So, of course, he wants to return to the hierarchical system that had the church at the top, basically giving him all the authority on earth. And I'm not saying his reasons aren't justified. I'm not saying his logic isn't sound. But, of course, it comes from a perspective like that. So take it with a grain of salt when you're hearing these arguments. But also don't dismiss them outright. Trust me, I went back and forth debating whether this is just about Pius wanting power again. Oh, Pope Pius wanting power. I love that alliteration there. I went back and forth arguing about that or in actually taking the arguments at face value and trying to evaluate them for their merit. So let's go to one quote. These are two longer quotes. Normally I do three. I have two long quotes. We'll take a break in between them and discuss a few things, but they are longer, so stick with me. Quote, Pius argues that liberalism as a historical phenomenon, was the process of replacing structures of justice with structures of exploitation and replacing solidarity with selfishness. This dynamic is, of course, present in the very theories of liberalism, which supposes society is made up of self-interested actors who come together only to further their self-interest 
and which thus replaced authority with the disinterested, quote-unquote, invisible hand of economic laws and indifferent political enforcement of property rights. F.A. Hayek, a liberal theorist who has was very prominent at the time Pius XI reigned, extolled liberalism's achievements in this department, writing of a gradual transformation of a rigidly organized hierarchical system into one where men can at least attempt to shape their own life, end quote. So what they're getting at here is before in the time of the church's power, there was a really strict hierarchy and one that was aimed towards the good of the whole. And rather than calling it collectivism, they call it solidarity here, in that through this system, through this natural hierarchy that had formed, they were all aiming for the same thing. So the people at the bottom were supporting the church. The church was trying to support their mission to spread Christianity and also support the people below it. And then the head of the church That was funded by the church, obviously, and they were looking out for the truth, trying to reach the best possible truth that they could during their time, and also supporting the church below them, putting out policies that pursue the truth and help the church, and also help the people at the bottom of the hierarchy, at the bottom of the pyramid. So there's this solidarity between all the layers of the hierarchy. And where this does fall apart a little bit for me is, People are naturally self-interested, or at least that's what I believe. Now, maybe Pius has a different assumption that he's working from in the idea of his worldview, but I believe that people are naturally self-interested. So if you put one person as a central authority above the church, say a pope or even a cardinal or a bishop in a locale, then they could exploit the hierarchy, the power that they have at the top of that that food pyramid, you know, that's kind of a weird way to put it, at the top of the hierarchical structure, and they could then use the people below for their own means. So with the new system of liberalism, the idea, the ideal, is that, okay, everybody is self-interested, but in order for them to best pursue their self-interest, they actually have to feed into a system this idea of a economic invisible hand, a system that channels that self-interest into helping the society. By pursuing their own self-interest in the market, they're actually being competitive. They're actually forcing prices to go down at a different shop who offers the same goods. Because, you know, you want to be the best producer, you want to have the cheapest product, so more people will come to you. That's your self-interest. But then you're also forcing your competitor to lower their prices, and guess who that benefits? That benefits the consumer. And then in order to make new products, you have to innovate, which helps you get more customers, but also that innovation eventually helps the consumer and other industries. So you can see at least the framework of how this self-interested system is supposed to channel that idea that, oh, no, 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 hey, we're self-interested. We got to channel that into something that will help everybody. And Pius says, okay, you know, maybe there's some structure there, but that actually leads to a lot more problems than it's worth. And there is some pushback from Hayek here. Hayek's like, no, 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 this is good. We're actually finding a way to channel sin. And the Pope obviously thinks, no, 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 greed, self-interest to this degree, that's sin, and we shouldn't be putting that forward in the first place. So you can see where their divergent worldviews are coming from. 
And we haven't gotten to how this develops socialism quite yet, but it's important to set this up. I'll finish the quote because Hayek has another interesting thing to say here. Quote, he continues, During the whole of this modern period, the general direction of social development was one of freeing the individual from the ties which had bound him to the customary or prescribed ways. End quote. As a liberal, Hayek, of course, framed all of history within the individualistic versus collectivist dichotomy, and so saw all the pre-modern structures as merely forms of stifling collectivism. Hayek and Pius see the same historical reality and the replacement of decentralized and personal forms with centralized, impersonal forms for, uh, from nearly opposite directions, end quote. So basically, they see the same thing, but they have very different worldviews about how things should be structured and what's actually valuable in those systems. So, of course, they're going to have divergent opinions. And I definitely think that it's hard for us nowadays to listen to some of these arguments and be like, wait, hold on. Liberalism is, is bad? What do, you, what do you mean liberalism is bad? We've grown up, at least I have, and if you're my age, you're probably 23. If you're even 40, you have grown up in a very, very liberal system, one that is not just liberal in our economics here in the United States, but on a global front. We are constantly opening up trade boundaries, trying to interact with other countries, export jobs to countries where we can get lower wages, import goods that are cheaper from other countries that have a burgeoning manufacturing base. So we have lived in a very liberal system. And also the United States has flourished as a liberal system in the last 50 years, ensuring rights for everybody, ensuring that the individual has the ability to live as they please. And this isn't the case in some other countries. I mean, look at China. The individual has been allowed to thrive, but still the collective, the whole, the state comes first. So we kind of have this idea that, no, 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 any form of collectivism is bad. So hearing some of Pius's arguments sounds like, whoa, 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 you want me to put my self-interest to the side in order to help the collective, to, in order to help a hierarchy that could be exploited, that could be taken advantage of by the people at the top, and we're a little bit hesitant. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't at least listen to this next part where he talks about how some of the incentives in capitalism and socialism are actually aligned. So we set up why Pius believes what he believes, and we've pushed back a little bit, but now we need to hear the part where, okay, socialism is born of capitalism. And just because we don't agree with everything he said before, we need to listen to this part, because I think it's very, very important to understand the strings that connect the two, because it will actually help anybody who doesn't want our world, our beautiful democracy here, to turn into a socialist democracy, or even anyone who wants it to become a socialist democracy, you have to understand either what you're pushing back against or what strings you need to pull in order to make it. Let's be clear, I don't want to make any socialists of you. I don't want to help the socialist revolution. But if you listen to this and you are an avid socialist and you want to use this to do it, go right ahead. Just don't quote me or don't put me down as a reference when you're writing your manifesto. That'd be amazing. <laughs> uh, so this is a second quote. It's a little bit longer, so we'll stop in the middle and we'll break it down. Quote, the destruction of solidarity led to the unhappiness of the people. Hierarchies of subsidiarity, structures of solidarity, develop out of a people oriented to truth and so to real happiness because these are the form of the fulfillment 
that the objective takes, even as they are the means of achieving it as well. A happy family, for example, both produces happy people and is the form of life that happy people build. This holds true for all social structures of solidarity. Happy people build decentralized and pluralistic societies of ascending authority because such societies are what make people happy. The destruction of these structures then and the replacement of them with hegemonic structures of self-interest was both caused by and led to this social unhappiness. People were increasingly lonely and afraid. They were anxious and restless. So let's take a break there. So what he's saying is that for a society to survive, thrive, it has to be oriented to what is good and true. And when it is, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. When you have a society that's based around the family structure, more families will be created, and therefore more happiness will be created. And in order to sustain that happiness more people will create families. And this, of course, comes from his worldview that families are a good thing. I agree. But also it comes from the idea that a society, not just our society, but a society for all of human history has been oriented towards certain truths and goals. And almost all societies tend, even if they start as a completely equal system, tend towards hierarchies because this is what makes people happy. And I don't know if this is because people want someone to follow or some people just want to lead and there's natural there's a natural difference between those two types of the populace or it's because over time more people are able to hold on to more power the families that they have are able to sustain their wealth their power their influence and maybe it's more Machiavellian than a natural tendency of human beings. But what he's speaking about here is over time throughout history, we have created lots of hierarchical structures. And for the most part, a lot of those societies have been happy. Now, some would argue that is not the case. And I could say there are lots of oppressive dictatorships that have not made people happy. But that doesn't mean that there aren't societies that are happy that have those hierarchical structures built into them. So let's go on to the second point where socialism really takes advantage of the unhappiness that comes from systems that do not pursue the truth or a quote-unquote natural order. Quote, socialism begins with the affirmation of class conflict. It does not suggest that class conflict is wrong, rather that it must be waged as ruthlessly as possible. It affirms the bitterness and envy of the workers against the wealth, even as it suggests that the wealthy must, in their nature, oppress the workers. Both classes are merely pursuing their self-interest, which, for the socialist, as for the liberal, is the universal law of history. Socialism does not question liberalism's practical atheism, but makes it explicit. Socialism does not question liberalism's implicit philosophical materialism or moral relativism, but makes them explicit. It does not lament liberalism's destruction of the family, morality or the church or traditional ways of life but rather seeks to complete the destruction it does not challenge liberalism's obsession with equality but shifts the obsession from equal from formal equality to material equality it does not question liberalism's drive to the accumulation of wealth but rather doubles down and argues that socialism will outproduce capitalism 
that socialism will eliminate scarcity, end quote. So you can see the, the threads that it's pulling on here. So if you're self-interested and you're diverging from a Christian society that is meant to be held together by those Christian bonds where you sacrifice some of your own time, your own money, your own will to help others, then socialism is just going to take that to its ultimate end and say, okay, well, if we're already moving that way, we don't need church. The one, there are two that really stick out to me, which is the one where he talks about obsession of equality, where in a liberal society, we want to have equality under the law. We want to say that everybody has the same opportunity to achieve certain goals, or we want to try to have that baseline, where in socialism, instead of saying we all have the same opportunity, it wants to argue that we all have the same outcome. And also where he acknowledges that the workers and the employers, they're both actually pursuing their best interests. The employers, they're saying, well, no, no, I need my workers to be you know, cheap labor in order to make sure that I can produce my products as cheaply as possible and sell them to consumers and make them appealing. And workers are, of course, going to argue, no, no, I need as much money as I can get so I can pay for my weekly bills. So, of course, in pursuing both of their self-interests, they're actually conflicting. They're going head-to-head. And that's why you see class conflict that socialism is able to exploit. So you can see the threads here. And this is where I think his argument is strongest because he does make good connections. And the real question then becomes, how do you fight it? And my argument would be you have to have a strong social fabric. And if you've listened to Ben Shapiro or even Kyle Kalinske briefly mentions this or Tim Poole, who's a little bit of a liberal, he says it as, oh, we have to have a strong culture. But all of them are speaking to the fact that there's an underlying morality or, if you would rather, an underlying tendency that we need to have as a society towards helping one another, towards having strong compassion and love for one another. And this is very easy to explain because for a long time we had that. We had that in the idea that a lot of people were religious, but even if they weren't religious, there was a strong moral pull in the system in order to give a little bit extra of your money to charity, to create foundations like Rockefeller. He may have been a billionaire, but he gave a lot of his money to charity. He gave it a lot of his money to universities and libraries. And of course, that bought him political sway, but also he gave a lot of it away because he was trying to be charitable. And when you have that sort of system in place, when you have an underlying moral assumption that we have to be moral people, we have to look out for others, not just ourselves, you can pursue your self-interest and you can do it at the expense of others, but you should still give back to your community, your nation, your country as a whole. And in order to reinvest or in order to recreate that, I would say we would probably have to move towards either a more Christian worldview or we would have to have a really strong culture shift. And we would have to really praise, rather than people that have immoral behaviors on social media, we praise the good people in our society, the ones that follow the rules, the ones who are moral, who lead by a good example, not the ones who are making millions of dollars by shaking their booties. That's just my opinion. 
you know, I don't think that it's going to happen anytime soon, but maybe there'll be a cultural realignment. And I think there's going to have to be. Otherwise, we're just going to get closer and closer to a system that is not actually looking out for everybody, but where everybody is just looking out for themselves. And in order for the system to actually look out for people, the society look out for people, we're going to have to wield the hammer of government. And that's never good because that actually leads to the government infringing upon your individuality, which is what liberalism is all about. So by becoming too liberal and trying to also imply that we need to focus on the rest of society, we actually empower the government to do it rather than saying, no, no, this is on us on the social side. You government, you just pass trade policies, you pass monetary policies, a few laws here or there that we think are important, keep the social fabric okay on the boundaries, and we'll make sure that it's all knitted well and there are no holes here in the center. We'll see how it all pans out. I thought it was an interesting argument for Pius. It did take a long time, but let's jump to a quick two articles. We're going to go to the one from Hot Air first. Can you identify or define leftism? So this is, of course, a important one because we are talking nowadays about leftism a lot more frequently. You have it mentioned a lot more in the news media. You have people outright calling themselves leftists. So being able to define it would be very important. And the first quote I had here was talking about how there's a difference between liberalism and leftism. They're not the same thing. I think just saying that is enough that the quote's not going to be important. Let's actually get to the part where the author here defines what leftism is. And let's be clear, this is Dennis Prager. So he is conservative. He's coming from that point of view. And you may not like his definition, but I think it's one that is backed up a little bit by evidence in his second quote or that I pulled from this article. Quote, what then is leftism? Leftism is the attempt to destroy the past every value, every institution, the good as well as what is regarded as the bad. That is why leftists, by definition, hate conservatism. Conservatism seeks to conserve the best from the past. The left seeks to destroy the past, including the best. The first of the modern left-wing revolutions, the French Revolution, quite concisely sought to destroy every major institution and value of French society. Not just the monarchy, but God, religion, the legal system, traditional notions of good and evil, the calendar, the way of telling time, the old weights and measures, and even the names of the days of the week. In other words, the past, just like the left in contemporary America, the leftists in the French Revolution toppled statues. In their cases, the statues were of every king of France. The next major left-wing revolution, the Russian, did the same. As the Soviet dissident joke went, quote, in the Soviet Union, the future is known. It's the past, which is always changing, end quote. And now you can begin to understand leftism, end quote. So you can see what he's playing at here, which is in leftism. And if you want to generally call it leftism, or you could call it a radical progressivism, radical socialism. You could give it a whole bunch of names, but leftism is a broad category name. Any movement that seeks to radically change the culture says, hey, we need to make sure that the old vestiges, the old institutions, the old view of things is no longer hindering our movement forward. 
We do not want to be held down. We do not want to have to remember how things used to be done. We don't want those structures to still be in place. So instead of slowly phasing them out, instead of just saying, no, they were bad, we actually have to actively destroy them and undermine them and make sure that there's no memory of them. And that's a very interesting position. And I think that Dennis Prager, of course, coming from the conservative side, is very negative towards them. And I would say that the conservatives, while they do want to conserve, there is also this idea that, well, we have to, at the end of the day, conserve for conservation's sake. And he does make a very important difference here, which I do agree with, which is, no, we need to conserve the good. And that's what some young conservatives or people who are conservative but don't necessarily truly understand what conservatism is say we have to conserve everything as it is. No, no, no. We are in a constant laboratory, basically. This is a giant social experiment that has been going on for thousands of years with humanity. We are constantly evolving, and we need a liberal or more left-leaning part of the system that's willing to innovate, change, come up with new ideas that push the boundaries. And then conservatives grab the reins and pull things back and say, okay, hold on, we're moving a little bit too fast now, and we need to really hem this in, make sure that it's done in the right way, and where the left wants to say, okay, hell no, no, we need to forget those old tactics, the way that we used to do things. They don't work anymore. We have a new system. The conservatives are saying, okay, fine, we see your argument here, but is there anything good that we can at least take from that and preserve because it actually served us well and we're not just going to discard it outright? And that's the push and pull between the two different systems of thinking, the new versus the old. And that's where conservatism and I would want to say liberalism, not leftism, because leftism is the furthest version of the left where there's no room to leave anything. They're not willing to concede that we have to leave anything. They just want to get rid of everything, or at least that's what Dennis Prager would argue. And I think it's an interesting idea. So now you have a quick definition of leftism, and now you can go forward and talk about it with your friends, whether you like it or you don't. Now, I want to jump to one more article, which I think is important today, which comes from the New York Times. In hosting Moody, Biden pushes democracy concern to the background. Quote, President Biden has declared the battle between democracy and autocracy to be the defining struggle of his time. But when he rolls out the red carpet on the South Lawn of the White House for Prime Minister Narida Moody of India on Thursday morning, but Mr. Biden will effectively call a temporary truce. In granting Mr. Moody a coveted state visit, complete with a star-studded gala dinner, Mr. Biden will show a shower attention on a leader presiding over democratic backsliding in the world's most populous nation. Mr. Moody's government has cracked down on dissidents and hounded opponents in ways that has raised fears of an authoritarian turn not seen since India slipped into dictatorship in nine, in the 1970s, end quote. So there has been a lot of posturing by the Biden administration, which is the biggest battle of our time is between a democratic system and a autocracy, an autocratic system. And when you make this sort of strong rhetoric and you make it part of your foreign policy where we're going to try to promote democracy and we're going to try to shame autocracy, you put yourself in a really, really hard position. And that's what some of the people are pointing out here, some of the commenters in this article. And I want to read you one of their comments because I definitely think 
it really sums it up better than I could. They're more eloquent. They had a little bit more time to write it down, and they're not just a dumb post-college graduate who's reporting on the news. They're actually experienced at this. Quote, Anytime a president dresses up his foreign policy in the language of values, any concession to geopolitical reality inevitably elicits cries of hypocrisy, said Hall Brands, a professor of global affairs at the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Quote, the reality, of course, is that every U.S. president, including the ones most devoted to democracy and human rights, realize that there are some real relationships that were just too strategically important to hold hostage to concerns about democratic values, end quote. And this really does highlight what the important part here is. India is a very, very important strategic partner in the Indo-Pacific region, especially when it comes to hemming in China and making sure that they don't grow too powerful on the world stage. Because they're actually in a border conflict with China right now. There's some disputed land up near the border where Tibet used to be, and each side is kind of encroaching a little bit. Some shots have been fired. Uh, you know, you hear reports from the Indian government saying, oh, China's being the aggressor. And of course, you hear reports from China saying India is the aggressor. I tend to say that India is not actually the aggressor, but let's be clear, I, I have no idea. I'm not there on the ground. I know that China has been building makeshift towns to argue, no, no, this area that has been disputed, we actually have people living here, so it is our territory. I've seen some videos and photos of these towns being built up over a few months. So, uh, like I said, I'm inclined to believe India, but I'm not on the ground there. Maybe the Indian soldiers are antagonizing the Chinese soldiers more than anything. But there's still a very important geopolitical ally there. And the fact that they didn't come out outright and support Ukraine versus Russia, they're trying to flex their muscle on the international stage a little bit. They're trying to say, hey, we don't have to bend to either Russia and China or to the United States and NATO. We are a very powerful country. We have interests that are our own, and we're not going to just jump into one side or the other because we're allies with you. We're not dependent on you. We're our own sovereign nation. We now are the most populous nation in the world. We have a strong economic base that is growing. We have a burgeoning middle class. We are now becoming an international power. Take us seriously. We're not just going to bend the knee to anybody. So, Biden really is put in a tough position. He's speaking about autocracy. He's talking about authoritarian control in some countries and saying how it's bad. He is lambasting Saudi Arabia for their actions, but then going and begging them to help in the crisis that we had during the oil uh, inflationary period where we were spending lots of money on oil and gas prices jumped up. And in order to secure his place in the midterms, he was trying to cut a deal with the Saudis to actually not cut their production. And now he's going to Moody saying, hey, you know, China's kind of burgeoning a little bit here. We, we're going to need your help. We're going to need your support in the alliance with Japan and Australia. And I want to make sure that we're on the same page here. So he's not going to call out the autocracy, the problems with authoritarianism that the New York Times is talking about here, because, hey, I need you right now. So, yeah, he puts himself in a tricky position when he waxes poetic about protecting democracy and then goes out to the world and realizes, okay, 
well, I, you know, that I can't necessarily imply that these countries aren't democratic, that they're evil, that they're doing something wrong because they're not protecting democracy exactly how I want because I need them. And if I insult them, they're not going to come to the table. So it's just interesting to see geopolitical realities facing strong at home rhetoric. And, you know, it shows not necessarily hypocrisy because at the end of the day, Joe Biden does want to achieve democracy, but he also understands the reality. And I don't necessarily think that's hypocritical unless you're someone who wants to see it as hypocritical, who wants to point out that he's not saying everybody has to be a democracy. I think if you're a realist, you understand we can pursue democracy, we can encourage democracy, while also acknowledging the realities of how things are around the world and understanding we can't get there instantly with the snap of our fingers. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Yahoo Life. Husky's Beach Day is hilariously interrupted by a clearly amazing little visitor. So who doesn't like a good beach day? Quote, dad dog Hal Bringman brought his two Siberian Huskies to their local dog-friendly beach for a run, a fun walk in the sand. But one of the pups ran into another annoying little friend while digging around. To be fair, we wouldn't be happy if someone started digging up our home either, end quote. You know, and if someone was digging into my house, I agree. I would not be happy. I mean, if I was in Texas, if someone tried to invade my house without my permission, just stepped on in, was digging on in, you know exactly what would happen. Texas is the way it is for a reason. And uh, they, they'd love the shotguns there. Let's just say that much. Quote, this poor husky looks so confused about what squirted him in the face. And we don't blame him one bit. The clam's attack was so sudden. Luckily, it was just a little squirt of water and got the message across. So both parties peacefully parted ways, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I'm posting Twitter tirades on Tuesday and Thursday. Little brief uh, rants, basically, that are not scripted like they are here on YouTube, or at least I don't have quotes and I haven't researched them as much. I'm just kind of going off on a topic. And that is, like I said, Twitter exclusive at your daily flip. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.